I'm Hillary. I'm Emily. And we're the, we're the Sirens. Today we are discussing the classic musical romantic comedy Singing in the Rain, which is one of Emily's favorites. I have on good authority. Don't give it away. <laughs> <laughs> it is a 1952 uh, movie that was directed and choreographed by Gene Kelly and Stanley Donen. It stars Gene Kelly, Donald O'Connor, uh, and also Debbie Reynolds. It also features performances from Rita Moreno and Sid Charisse. It was inspired by the song Singing in the Rain, and the music was written by Lenny Hayton, Nasio, Herb Brown, and Arthur Freed. The movie tells the story of Don Lockwood and Lena Lamont, who are two silent film stars whose careers are put to the test with the transition from silent film to talkies. So it's kind of meta. In a bid to outrun some raging fans, Don leaps into a car that's driven by Kathy Selden, who's played by Debbie Reynolds. Um, and Debbie, this era, Kathy Selden, um, claims to be not at all impressed with his movie star ways. But as luck would have it, Lena's annoying voice is a sticking point in the Lockwood and Lamont's uh, continued box, box office success. Um, and Don it happens to fall in love with Kathy, who turns out to be a chorus girl with, like, amazing dancing and singing skills. So then Don, his best friend Cosmo, who's played by Donald O'Connor, um, and Kathy come up with a plan to save the movie, their careers, and their love, and singing, dancing, and romancing ensues. That's the plot of Singing in the Rain. Do you have any trivia? Yes, and there's a lot of trivia for this movie, so if you're interested, I would recommend that you go look it up, because it's too much to include <laughs> just here. Uh-huh. Um, a lot of the trivia that I'm including is basically about how terrible Gene Kelly was to work with and what a tyrant he was. Great. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, it's the stereotype of the genius artist that they hold everyone to impossible standards. <laughs> So Debbie Reynolds was only 19 when she was cast to play in this movie, and she still lived with her parents and commuted to the set, and she had to wake up at 4 a.m. to take three different buses to the studio, and Gene Kelly often had them working, like, 19-hour days because he's Gene Kelly, so sometimes she would just sleep at the studio. Oh, my God. (laughs) And Gene Kelly... So Debbie Reynolds had never really, like, danced before this movie, (laughs) and... Gene Kelly's one of the greatest dancers of all time. So he was really, really tough on her to the point that she was like constantly in tears. And the rumor is that she was practicing in a studio on set and Fred Astaire was in the adjacent dance studio and heard her crying and came to help her learn her dance moves better and reassure her that she was doing great. Debbie Reynolds said years later that making this movie and surviving childbirth were the two hardest things she's ever had to do. (laughs) Um, Okay. (laughs) And um, Gene Kelly did not reserve his tyrannical ways just for Debbie Reynolds. He was tough on everyone, including Donald O'Connor, who was a much more seasoned Mm -hmm. actor and dancer. Um, And in the Make Him Laugh number, Gene Kelly asked Donald O'Connor to... Uh, bring back a trick that he had done as a young dancer, that, that move where he runs up the wall and flips mm-hmm. over. Which, when I rewatched the movie this time, I was like, wow, that is amazing. I can't believe Donald O'Connor did that himself and didn't have, like, a double or something. Mm-hmm. But apparently that whole solo number of his was so taxing 
that O'Connor was like a nervous wreck during the filming. He was smoking four packs of cigarettes a day and he ended up in a hospital bed for a week after it was done from mm -hmm. exhaustion and he had terrible carpet burns from all the flipping over. <laughs> and uh, an accident ruined all of the footage. So what? Gene Kelly made him immediately come back and do the number all over again. <laughs> Oh my god. So, yes. The famous scene, well, this movie has a lot of famous scenes, but one of the most famous scenes is the singing in the rain dance number, uh, where, the, you know, they have a lot of water to make it look like it's raining, and they added milk to the water so that the rain would be more visible on film, which I thought was uh... interesting. And... This is sort of a well-known piece of trivia, but the the take that appears in the movie was Gene Kelly's first take, and it was all done in one shot, and they hadn't even fully blocked out the choreography oh, at that point. I didn't know that. So he had only blocked out his starting and ending positions, and they just said, oh, we have the set prepared. Why don't we just try it to practice the shots? And that ended up being the take that was in the movie. That's crazy. <laughs> I know. Which is like, how incredible is Gene Kelly that that is the case. Um, and that's all the trivia that I included. Yeah. Well, like you said, there's a lot of trivia. Maybe um, listeners will um, tweet at us with additional trivia. Yeah, there there is a lot. Um, and there's a lot of famous actors and dancers in this movie, so we'd love to talk to you about it. Yeah. Um well, I can tell you about one of the famous actors who appears in this movie. We've, for a previous movie, we bioed um, Gene Kelly. Um, so this time we are not talking about Gene Kelly in much detail. Instead, I'm going to talk a little bit about Rita Moreno, who has a tiny role as Zelda. Um, yes, which I didn't even realize that was her until you pointed it out. And I've seen this movie many times. Yeah, I didn't realize it until afterwards where I was like, oh, oh, right. Her, I saw her name in the opening credits, but I didn't, like, I didn't know who she was. So she plays Zelda, who is a, Zelda is an actor that has a minor role in the movie that Lockwood and Lamont are making. Um, so it's a minor role as a minor role. Um, but so Rita Moreno was born Rosa Dolores Alvario Marcano, um, on December 11th, 1931, in Puerto Rico, um, to Rosa Maria, uh, who is a seamstress, and Francisco Jose Alvario, who is a, a farmer. <laughs> um, so her, when Rita was five years old, her mother moved to New York City um, with uh, her daughter, but not her son, uh, Rita's younger brother, Francisco, which I, I guess is a, some darker backstory. Um, Rita eventually adopted the last name of her stepfather, Edward Moreno, um, and she spent her teenage years living in, um, Valley Stream, New York, on Long Island, um, and then she began her first dancing lessons, actually soon after her fam she and her mother came to New York, um, she studied first with, um, a Spanish dancer named Paco Cancino, who was, I guess, an uncle of Rita Hayworth. Um, so a foot in the door with the um, fancy film people. Um, when she was just 11, she started lending her voice to Spanish language versions of American films. And she um, had her first Broadway role 
um, in the play Sky Drift by the time she was 13, which in turn caught the attention of, uh, or the attention of Hollywood talent scouts. So she pretty quickly got into the, into acting. And she, um, went on to act steadily in films throughout the 1950s, largely in smaller roles, like Singing in the Rain in 1952, um, but by March of 1954, she had caught enough attention of the public and the media that she was featured on the cover of Life magazine um, with the caption, Rita Moreno, an actress's catalog of sex and innocence. Oh. <laughs> yeah. She de- generally disliked um, most of the movies that she appeared in during this period because she thought she was mostly given stereotypical roles Interestingly, she um, also appeared in the film version of The King and I, which I never realized until um, until doing this research for this podcast episode. She plays Tupton, who is the, the Thai like, courtier that ends up, um, like in real life, she gets killed. But oh. she, she's like this part of the secondary like love story. And I, I haven't seen King and I in a long time, but I, it, like, I, I didn't know that... Uh, Rita Moreno, isn't it? Um, in 1961, she landed um, a, a role you may have heard of, Anita, in um, <laughs> West Side Story. Um, she won an Academy Award for Best Supporting Actress for that role. Um, and then after winning that Oscar, you know, the idea is that, like, you know, your, your way forward and your career is set. But she, she didn't actually make another movie until 1968 when she appeared in The Night of the Following Day with Marlon Brando um, and then appeared in several other movies in the next couple of years. So um, from then on, she worked steadily. Um, And then from 1971 until 1977, she was a main cast member in the PBS children's series The Electric Company. Um, And then, you know, throughout the 1970s, she worked steadily on um, lots of different TV series, including The Love Boat, The Cosby Show, the Golden Girls um, in Miami Vice, and so that's moving into the 80s and 90s. Um, she also, in the mid-90s, um, this is a fun fact, she provided the voice, apparently, of Carmen Sandiego in the series Where on Earth is Carmen Sandiego. What? Um, yeah. <laughs> that's amazing, because she was also recently on Jane the Virgin oh. as... Rogelio's mother, and now they're remaking Carmen Sandiego, and the star of Jane the Virgin is doing the new voice of oh, Carmen Sandiego. That's some good, uh, good things. And she's, of course, now on, uh, Rita Moreno is now on the remake of One Day at a Time um, as the grandmother. There's a fun fact about her. She's one of the few aud- artists to have won all four major annual American um, entertainment awards. So she has an Oscar, an Emmy, a Grammy, and a Tony. She also is one of only 23 people who have achieved the triple crown of acting, which is individual, competitive, um, Academy, Emmy, and Tony Awards for acting. So she's gotten all three of those awards for for acting. And she and Helen Hayes are the only two people to have done both, have gotten an EGOT and the triple crown of acting. So she's kind of a badass. (laughs) That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. So. Also, I've heard that One Day at a Time is good, and knowing that she's in it makes me want to check it out more. I My personal feeling is that it is 
just the TV show that we need nowadays. Like, it's sweet. Yeah. And, like, doesn't mince words when it comes to, like, the issues that we're dealing with today, but... She's great. Yeah. Um, well, I buy a Debbie Reynolds, yes. another badass lady. Yes. <laughs> she was born Mary Frances Debbie Reynolds on April 1st, 1932 in El Paso, Texas. Uh, she was an American actress, singer, businesswoman, film historian, and humanitarian, and her career spanned over 70 years. And her film career began at age 16 at MGM when she won a beauty contest impersonating Betty Hutton. Um, and this role in Singing in the Rain was her breakout role as Kathy Selden in 1952. Uh, and she was also kind of award-heavy, although she did not win as many <laughs> as previously <laughs> mentioned. She was nominated for the Golden Globe Award for Most Promising Newcomer, for playing Helen Kane in the 1950 film Three Little Words, and some of her other film successes were The Affairs of Dobie Gillis, Susan Slept Here, Bundle of Joy, for which she won the Golden Globe nomination, The Catered Affair, for which she was nominated for the 1956 National Board of Review Best Supporting Actress, and Tammy and the Bachelor, from 1957, in which her performance of the song Tammy reached number one on the Billboard music charts. Hmm. In 1959, she released her first pop music album titled Debbie. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She starred in How the West Was Won in 1962 and The Unsinkable Molly Brown in 1964. That performance earned her an Academy Award nomination for Best Actress. In 1969, she starred on television in The Debbie Reynolds Show, for which she received a Golden Globe nomination. And in 1973, she starred in a Broadway revival of the musical Irene and was nominated for the Tony Award for Best Lead Actress in a Musical. Uh, She was also nominated for a Daytime Emmy for her performance in A Gift of Love in 1999 and an Emmy Award for playing Grace's mother, Bobby, on Will and Grace. Oh, right, I forgot about that. And this is something that I did not remember, but she uh, also had a an important role as Aggie Cromwell in Disney's Halloween Town series, which was super popular, like, when we were kids. And in 1988, she released her autobiography titled Debbie, My Life. Uh, And in 2013, she released a second autobiography, Unsinkable, a memoir. So really, she kind of... She did everything. Yeah. Uh, She also had several business ventures, including owning a dance studio and a Las Vegas hotel and casino. She was president of the Thalians, an organization dedicated to mental health causes. Uh, And she continued to perform on stage, television, and film into her 80s. In January 2015, she received the Screen Actors Guild Life Achievement Award. And in 2016, she received the Academy Award Jean Herschelt Humanitarian Award. And in the same year, a documentary about her life was released titled Bright Lights, starring Carrie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds, uh, which actually ended up being her last film appearance. Mm -hmm. And on December 28th, 2016, she was hospitalized for a severe stroke, and she died that afternoon, uh, just one day after the death of her daughter, Carrie Fisher, which was very sad. Yeah. She was pretty amazing. She kind of did everything. Yeah. We have got a couple of Renaissance women <laughs> in this movie. Also, I remember that my German teacher from high school was, like, obsessed with her and constantly bringing up how she was the perfect woman. Um, 
<laughs> kind of weird. <laughs> yes, I know. He didn't teach a lot of German. <laughs> so, should we get into it? Yeah, let's get into it. Um, okay, I want to ask your impressions first, because th- this was your first time watching it, right? I saw a stage version of it, like a high school production of this, when I was in high school. I don't think that I have seen had seen the movie before. To be honest, I liked everything about this movie. I enjoyed it, except for the 15-minute dance sequence at the end, the Broadway melody, melody thing that was, like, like endless and had nothing to do <laughs> with the plot, <laughs> which I know, like, they had to include because it was Gene Kelly and it was a way to get Sid Charisse in and, you know, dancing had to happen and whatever, but... And I liked the conceit of, like, like to get in and get out of, you know, and Gene Kelly's character is, like, sort of proposing this, like, additional scene for the movie. And so he says <clears throat> to the director, I think, like, oh, you know, we could do a, here's my idea for the scene. And then we have 20 minutes of, like, dancing. And then he comes back <laughs> yeah, out again and he's like, yeah, so that's kind of what I was thinking. And the director is like, well, we'll have to see what it looks like on screen. Like, that was funny. Like, a good joke, and I guess in order to, like, make that joke, you have to, like, endure the 20 minutes of dancing, but, like, this was the movie where I was, like, I never, I, like, I I never have to worry about, like, spending any money on, like, going to the ballet. It is not. (laughs) I just don't care. I was texting with my best friend about watching, re-watching this, because we watched this movie a ton uh, growing up, and she was like, "Yeah, that movie's so great, but did you fast forward through the long dance scene?" <laughs> I was like, "Yeah," um, and that was always our joke about it—that like we pretty much like the whole movie, except for that, scene. except for that part. Yeah, but which isn't to say that it is not a great dance scene. It just completely takes you out of the mm-hmm. yes, yeah, plot. And this time watching it, I tried to just look at it objectively as, like, how is this as a, as a dance number? Mm-hmm. And I enjoyed it more. And also uh, looked at the interesting cinematography that they did with yeah. that number. Mm-hmm. Like, especially that part where, like, they're kind of dancing with the scarf and some of the, like, perspectives in that mm-hmm. and stuff I thought was really interesting. But, yes, that was usually the part where... When I was a kid, I was like, oh, yeah, we can skip this part. Yeah. And let's get back to the story. Well, and I feel like that kind of thing has come up. It was in Oklahoma. It was in An American in Paris. So I, I you know, I guess it's just, um, you know, a part of musicals at the time where, like, if you have, you know, the, the music and the choreography or whatever, then there might, there I guess there, there just has to be, like, a centerpiece, like, long dance number. That has nothing to do with the plot. (laughs) But here's the thing about that. I'm someone who enjoys dance. Like, I will pay money to go watch dance. (laughs) Like, I I did some dance growing up, and I really like it. But um, in this movie, I preferred some of the other dance scenes. Like, I really, really love the Moses Supposes song and dance, and that tap dancing. And it's integrated into the plot, Mm -hmm. so... It worked better for me, and it was, like, a more manageable length of time to work mm-hmm. in this musical format. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And this this was 
like an American in Paris where it's just like, we're going to go do something completely different for a really long time. Right. Like, you know, it was the kind of thing, like in American in Paris too, it was, they, it was also right at the very end of the movie where you're just like, there's literally seven more minutes of this plot. Or like in the American in Paris where like, there is no more plot. There's just like 30 <laughs> seconds left. But there's, you know, in this movie there was seven more minutes of plot, and it was like a commercial break where they were like, okay, we know that we've got you, and you're going to keep watching because there's because <laughs> there's seven more minutes, and we're right at that moment where, like, we're going to see whether our heroes are going to win and they're going to get together and whatever. And so we know we, we've hooked you, so we're going to take you out of it for a while. And, you know, whatever. But I agree with you that, like, there were uh, the dance scenes that were, or the dance numbers that were integrated, like, you know, Good Morning, Good Morning. I had heard that song, and I feel like we have, you and I have referenced that song in, like, conversations. I'm seeing it performed. There were, like, some parts of it that I was like, okay, why are you dancing with the rain slickers? But, <laughs> but it was cute, and it was, um... You know, it was, like, so well done, you know, it, and highlighted just, like, how hard the number was and how effortless it was that they, you know, that they were pulling it off. You know, that to me, that was much more enjoyable. I will say that I liked this movie probably 10,000 more times than I liked American in Paris. I did like this movie. Oh, yeah. Well, I think <laughs> this movie has aged a lot better yes. than American in Paris. Yeah. And I... It is considered by many people to be the best movie musical. It also has that, like, um, Hollywood movies about Hollywood thing going on. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, which you really like, right? Yeah, I enjoy that because I love, like, theater stuff and back, you know, backstage types of stuff. Uh Um, I did, I I wrote down, (laughs) narrative of this dance is very confusing about the Broadway (laughs) (laughs) Because I was like... I felt like I had the same thought progression that I've had watching that movie, like, the past ten times, which is, like, this girl is, like, chasing money. She's with the mobsters. Why Uh does she give him a coin? I don't understand. No, I don't know. And then it seemed like the message was money and love have, like, and fame have nothing to offer you, and you need to just stick with the art. Mm -hmm. But, But it didn't really... Uh, get there in any kind of clear way. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah, and it just takes away from the rest of the the movie. Like, speaking of things that don't have a clear plot, when I was trying to think of what the plot of this movie was to, like, write our summary for the beginning, I was like, I what is the plot of this movie? <laughs> They're <laughs> successful. The barriers to, like, success for Lockwood is that he's, like, paired publicly with this woman who, like, he doesn't actually love, even though, like, the papers are saying he's in love with her. And then, like, there's the looming sense that they're going to have to go from silent movies to talking movies, and actually she has a terrible talking voice, which, you know, is a problem. And, like, was a problem, actually, for a lot of actors. Then they have to make this movie, and the movie is terrible. And they try to make it a talking movie, and it's even worse. And... Then in order to save the talking movie, they have to make it into a musical. And in the meantime, there's also a love story. That's basically the plot. Yeah. I mean, a lot of it was just, like, the overarching, can these actors, like, make the transition to the talkies? And also, for Kathy, can she break into this field? I actually thought that the 
chemistry and like love scenes between Gene Kelly and Debbie Reynolds were really good and he was to me he seemed very convincingly in love with her mm-hmm. and I remember watching this as like a young girl and being like that's what it's like when someone's in love with you they look at you like that and then they tap dance <laughs> <laughs> and that was not true to life oh that's not what happened to you you didn't fall in love and no. someone tap danced no, I have yet to have someone tap dance out of love. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I kind of liked, for good or for ill, that, I, you know, I enjoy the trope where the people dislike each other at the beginning and then they end up together. Yeah. And I liked that uh, Kathy kind of put him in his place in the beginning. Because mm-hmm. um, he was just so used to everyone fawning over him. Yeah, and even, especially when we discover several minutes later, like, halfway through the film, that she actually, like, has seen all of his movies and, you know, act, likes him as an actor. Like, the fact that he just, like, shows up in her car, you know, she's not having any of it. She's, like, not automatically, like, swooning over him. You know, I like that. She, like, holds her ground. She's, even though he's a, like, successful movie actor and a man, and she's a young, a much younger woman who was just breaking in she still like manages to like hold her ground i did think it was hilarious when she had just put him down a bunch and then right after that it turns out she has to pop out of the cake at a point i know know. some good comedic timing (laughs) i liked the campiness of all of those like group dance numbers Mm -hmm. like that and the um beautiful girl number which is just so ridiculous yep uh, oh like, all those women holding those poses. Yeah. Yeah, and what I liked about that scene, though, or that that number, is that you can see some of those women actually not quite being able to hold the poses. And, you know, like, they're, like, shaking a little bit, and they're, like, unsteady on their feet a little bit, which, you know, like, that's how I would be. But, um, yeah. you know, I think it's nice that it's not quite perfect. Yes, I agree. Um, some of them really got the short end of the stick, and they got, like, a pose where they were standing on one leg. I know. Or, like, something <laughs> like that. I was like, ooh, sucks to be you. Yeah. It's like working exactly one set of muscles. <laughs> yes. Uh, what did you think of Donald O'Connor as Cosmo? I liked him. I mean, I sort of... I feel like we've seen this a number of times in movies that we've seen this, like, men best friends who are, like, really sweet to each other. Like in um, White Christmas, where... Um, you know, they're, they're these, you know, two guy friends who are, they're pals and they like are looking out for each other and they like give each other all kinds of crap. But like, there's no question that they're like on the same team and they're like got each other's back and they're like kind to each other. Yeah. I also thought the fact that Don takes Cosmo along with him, like Don Mm -hmm. is the one who has success. Mm Mm-hmm. And he doesn't leave Cosmo behind because they were partners, Mm -hmm. and I appreciated that. Yeah. And I did like that they had kind of like a bromance going on. Mm -hmm. They had also very good chemistry, I thought, Yeah, the two of them. Yeah, it was believable that they were, like, really good friends. Yeah, I loved the Moses supposed scene with the two of them, Mm -hmm. and I also really liked the make them laugh scene. Mm -hmm. And everything was just so athletic. Yeah. Like, they just killed it, but they had, like, huge smiles on their faces the whole time, so it looked effortless. Yeah, as they're, like, running around and up and down the, like, the walls. Oh, beautiful girl, 
What a gorgeous creature, beautiful girl. Let me call a preacher, what can I do but give my heart to you? Do you want to get into fashion? Because I would say like a third of my notes are about fashion <laughs> things. Yeah, so tell me, tell me about your fashion. Um, well, Gene Kelly can really wear a fedora. I know. <laughs> and he looks so good in them. I thought the sort of like jodhpur pants that a lot of the men were wearing, where they were like baggy at the thigh and tight at the calf, looked kind of ridiculous. Uh-huh. Um, I also liked that one suit Gene Kelly had with the like Jeff cap, and it was all white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then there was like a checked vest. I thought that looked really good. Um, speaking of checked vests, there's the, like, flashback to their, like, coming up story about, like, them growing up together, and they're, like, there's a flashback of the of Cosmo and Don doing this whole, like, vaudeville routine, and they're both wearing, maybe this is the outfit that you're talking about, the green and white suits that are checked. They had, it was, like, yes. trimmed in pink, I think. Yes. <laughs> I liked it. I, I mean, you know I love the vaudeville stuff. Yeah. <laughs> actually, if you think about it, the fact that Don had a vaudeville background is what saved his career when they transitioned into mm-hmm. talkies. Yeah. Because he already knew how to talk and sing and dance. Yeah. I was not a fan of Lena's green fringe dress no. in the opening scene. No. But I think they might have like deliberately put her in something not super flattering because we weren't supposed to like her. Yeah. I really liked Kathy's pleated dress in the good morning mm-hmm. scene, which was just like a day dress, but it looked really great on her. It looked so good on her and it was fitted perfectly to her. But also, that was one of those athletic scenes where I was like, she's just, like, running around in this dress in those cute little shoes. And she's keeping up with those men in their pants and their, like, much more athletic-appropriate shoes. And she just looks, you know, on point. Well, she's... Oh, she also had a really cute turban for the rain that I liked. Oh, yeah. She also had in... Oh, the, the fashion review? Yeah, the fashion one? review. Um, where there she's, like, in this clump of women, and they're all wearing those lavender dresses with the, like, handkerchief hem and then the lavender tulle cloche hat. I just wanted to wear that outfit always. The, like, lavender yes. dress. <laughs> <laughs> with the uneven hem and the cloche hat. I was like, it's the height of fashion right there. And there were a lot of cloche hats in this this movie because yes. it was like the time period. I really liked a lot of the fashion in this movie, but also it is the opposite of what I could actually wear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, like if, if we got into like... Because they were dressed like the 20s, mm-hmm. and that was like the time when it, it was for the boyish figures, and then everything cut you, everything was like a drop waist, and I'm like, nope, can't do that. Nope. I mean, it's nice on other people, but... Yeah, not a good look. I, I have a note in my in my note that just says, I want to wear every pair of shoes that Debbie Reynolds is wearing, and all of the cloche yes. hats. <laughs> At some point, yes. I stopped paying attention to the dresses, and just was paying attention to the shoes <laughs> and the hats, because there were a lot of really cute shoes and hats. I guess part, I was doing that partly because, like, I couldn't wear any of the dresses. <laughs> also, some cool glasses, too. Like, I liked Lena's glasses mm-hmm. at the preview mm-hmm. screening. Yes, totally. And then in the Broadway Melody scene, Gene Kelly wore glasses that later Cherise oh, right. uses to seduce him. And I also kind of liked those glasses. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. All the fashion in this movie was pretty great. We all want to help one another. Human beings are like that. 
We want to live by each other's happiness, not by each other's misery. Do you want to talk about social justice? Sure. I don't know how much in this movie there was when it comes to social justice. Yeah, um, beyond sort of like, don't be a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) There wasn't wasn't much of a message. I did notice like when they were walking through the studio in some of the earlier scenes and you can see there's other movies being shown or being filmed at that time, there's definitely some cultural appropriation going on in the background (laughs) which is um not great yeah for social justice but i mean yeah i don't think there is too much to say i I don't think it explicitly has any message about that yeah i mean i think there's like some tacit you know like oh what happens when an industry changes and like there are some people who are like equipped to make that transition and then other people who are not what happens to them you know when the industry is the movies i have no empathy Yeah, and in a lot of ways, I thought that the studio people seemed nicer than they probably would have been in real life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, they actually listened to the ideas of the actors Mm -hmm. and didn't particularly want to just screw over Kathy as the newcomer. Mm -hmm. From everything I've heard about Hollywood, it's not really how it is. I've been living my own life, making my own decisions for a long while now. It's impossible to go back to being treated like a child again. Well, do you want to talk about the Bechdel test and Lena? Yes. I kind of like the conceit at the beginning of the movie. She's a silent film star, and we can see her, like, speaking silently in a silent movie. And then for the first, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, she isn't she isn't allowed to speak. She can't get a word in edgewise to, like, speak to the public or, like, speak to the press. She just doesn't, she doesn't speak and can't speak or whatever. And it's sort of funny. And then she does speak. And you can see that, like, we're all supposed to understand that she has a terrible voice and a terrible, like, grating accent. And, like, that's not, that's why she's not speaking. But also, she's, like, set up at the beginning as being kind of dumb. She has, like, been convinced that, like, because the press is saying that she's in love with Don Lockwood, then she's, you know, they actually do have a love affair. You know, she's sort of set up as being this, like, dumb woman. But by the end of the movie, like, she's not nice to Kathy or to anyone else. She's mean, but it turns out she's not dumb. The movie, like, producer, you know, and the executive for the studio is like, you know, basically we're gonna... Like, this is the end of Lena's career. She has a terrible voice. She has she can't adapt to this. You know, we're going to basically cut her out of the industry. And she whips out her contract so fast and is like, oh, no. <laughs> like, <laughs> you, I, you know, if you try to do that, I will sue you. And here is the line in my contract that allows me to do that. And it's not nice, but it, like, shows some, like, astuteness, like, surprising astuteness on her part that, is admirable. Like, I'm glad that she ends up not being just, like, this one-dimensional, dumb, blonde, you know, movie starlet. You know, I like that there's a little bit of dimension to her, even though she's not sympathetic in any way at all, and is supposed to be the, like, the nasty foil to our heroine. Yeah, I definitely thought she had good street smarts. Mm Mm-hmm. 
and they showed that in the movie. And I think in the earlier scenes in the movie, if they hadn't showed her uh, refusing to talk to Don because he was a nobody, mm-hmm. and then all of a sudden being into him when he got cast, mm-hmm. and then also her kind of being a jerk to Kathy, I would have been like, you you guys are just villainizing her for no reason. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a lot to really make her seem so terrible. Like, she's at this party, and someone who's working at the party throws a cake in her face mm-hmm. like i would also probably be like i don't want that person around here. yeah this is a woman that she thinks like she she's in a relationship with don you know and this woman is like threatening that relationship so it's nice that she has some... and potentially her career as well mm-hmm. <laughs> but and uh, like all the stuff about her being dumb and her voice if you look at it was really just classism like she had a lower class accent yeah that's all it was yeah and she probably like didn't come from any kind of a find background Mm -hmm. for the movies to work everyone has to think that she's like a society person Mm -hmm. it's a lot of like pr stuff to be wrapped up in so did you think the movie passed the bechdel test was there ever a moment where two women were speaking to each other that weren't lena and the voice coach oh that's true does it have to be a substantive conversation or i don't know does it have to just be a (laughs) A conversation that's not about men. I think it passes. Yeah. Because, yeah, it wasn't about men. It was about her career. Yeah. And they, it was a female voice coach. Yeah. Which was a choice. True. That's true. And a lot of the conversation that the women do have in the movie is about their careers, mm-hmm. too. It's not just 100% about relationships the way it was in Holiday, for instance. Well, and when Zelda is, like, talking to Lena, they're sort of, they're talking about they're talking about Kathy as a threat, but not as a threat to, like, Lena as a, you know, as the love interest for Don, but as, like, a threat to Lena's career. Their conversations are about career, too. Yeah. So, I think it passes. It passes. Not, not with flying colors. <laughs> yeah. but, but technically. Yes. Are you ready to rate Hillary? I am. I think if I remove the 35-minute dance scene at the end of the movie, I would give it a three and a half. Whoa. I'm going to give it a (laughs) (laughs) 4.75. Okay. And I think this is one of the only times besides... It seems like Gene Kelly movies, I have some kind of bias or something like that. You're pro pro Gene Kelly. I am. But typically you give the higher rate. I was going to say, this is a... It's not surprising that this would be one where we're reversed. (laughs) I thought it was beautifully filmed, well acted. I love the costumes. It has great rewatchability. I have seen it endless times. A couple years ago, I saw it on the big screen and it was even better. Oh. Um, Yeah, it did have good effects that like good cinematography that would be nicely suited for the big screen. Yeah. And the only reason I don't give it five stars is because of the extended dance scene which I enjoy, but just not as a part of this movie. <laughs> not here. <laughs> yeah. But I just, I loved the joy of Gene Kelly in a lot of the dance numbers in this movie. And everyone was really on point. Mm-hmm. I mean, like Donald O'Connor was on point. Debbie Reynolds was on point. <laughs> Rita Moreno was on point. Yes. <laughs> in her small role. It's a shame they didn't have her dance. They could, I mean, she probably could have done the dance numbers better than Debbie Reynolds yeah. in her background. But yeah, but yes. Yeah, so so it's not, I mean, it it does not have the absolute perfection of All About Eve, but it is one of my favorite movies. That's fair. <laughs> That's me. Um, do we know what our next movies are? So our next movie it, is High Noon. 
May it please the court, I submit that my entire line of defense is based on the proposition that persons of the female sex should be dealt with before the law as the equals of persons of the male sex. Follow The Screen Sirens on Twitter at The Screen Sirens. And leave us a review on iTunes or SoundCloud to help other people find us. Thanks for listening. After all, tomorrow is another day.